Good morning, everyone. Welcome to those of you that are in-house. Welcome to those of you that are online with us today. And thanks to Shane Hoyt for this uh, good news today. Did you know that back in uh, century one, before any of what we've come to be known as the Creed, the Apostles' Creed, were, were formulated, that there was just a very short creed, just three words. And believers back then were required to say it aloud, and I'm going to ask you to say it aloud. Just three words following up Shane's presentation this morning. Jesus is Lord. Those first centuries, again, required to say it aloud. I require you to say it aloud. Would you say it? Jesus is Lord. Come on, you onliners, why don't you get involved today? Why don't you uh, engage and uh, send it in to your online host pastor this morning? Say it, Jesus is Lord. Say it with me one more time. Music to my ears. I want to uh, welcome uh, newlyweds that are here in house with us this morning. I'm not just sure where they're sitting, but Dan, Dan, uh, uh, Emily and David Scott are uh, brand new newlyweds, and they're here this morning. Let's just say a word of congratulation to them. You want to do that? Yes. I didn't. I didn't pick that up until I saw the uh, until I saw the registrations at the door. So that's. Uh, that's Daniel and Emily Scott, yes. Let's speak to the Father, and then we're going to go right to the Word. Father, as we open your Word now, would you speak to us? May it be a powerful Word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The website, theonion.com, professes to be America's finest news service. Some time ago, they published a fake press release the article was touting an imaginary snack food that was, that was meant to ease what the writer called hideously bleak, the hideously bleak emptiness of modern life. The writer described the snack like this. We're proud to introduce T.C. McCrispies as the antidote you've been reaching out for. Our tasty new snack cracker will if only for a few moments, significantly lessen the aching, gnawing angst that haunts your very soul. Now, according to the press release, participants in taste tests testified that the satisfying crunch dis distracted them from the parade of tears that is life. A fictitious spokesman summed up the campaign by saying, we're selling salty, unctuous illusion, the salty, unctuous illusion of happiness. Well, of course, it is an illusion. Happiness isn't found in a snack food, although you have to admit double Oreo is right up there with among the best, yes? Double Oreos, anyone? Double stuff Oreos, yes? What about it, you onliners? Double stuff Oreos, yes or no? Which? Well, the article does have make the point, though, that they point out that happiness does seem to elude most people. And, and so many offers that we see out there of a solution just seem to lead nowhere. 
So now I take you to the first book of the New Testament. That would be Matthew. And chapter 5, Jesus offers the way to a truly blessed and happy life. Now these 12 verses are known as the Beatitudes. But I need to tell you before I read them that what Jesus is speaking of here is an upside down world from the one we live in. You see, it would, it would seem today that our world has their own beatitudes. And they go like this. Happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they get their own way in the end. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men of the world, for they know their way around. And happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Really? Surely not. So let's look at Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of these 12 verses. Now, some versions of these verses use the more traditional, maybe the form that you're used to. They would go like this. Blessed are you when. That's the traditional form. But other versions use the more contemporary expression, and they say them like this. Happy are you when. The well-known television pastor from some years ago, Robert Schuller, called these called the Beatitudes, the be happy attitudes. And he's got something there. That's accurate. Jesus did indeed lay out a blueprint for the path to happiness. And it certainly is an upside down world. Let me read them to you. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink for the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete and fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. That what it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. 
and know that you are in good company, my prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. Now, I want you to notice, e even at first glance, these Beatitudes, two things, notice. These words are certainly out of step with what our culture, the messages we're getting from our culture. Come on, you'll be happy when you're poor? I don't think so, we think, the culture thinks. You'll be happy when people lie about you, really? You'll be happy when you've lost what's dear to you? The American novelist Flannery O'Connor has an interesting take on Jesus' words. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you odd. Apply these words. As disciples of Jesus Christ, if we apply these words of Jesus to our lives, we will indeed be A-plus disciples, but the world will indeed think we're odd but you'll be happy. And I want you to notice. So at first glance, these words are out of step with our culture, and I want you also to notice that these, that, uh, these words of Jesus are a tough climb even for those of us who claim to be his followers. I take you back to the opening verses of Matthew 5. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge clouds, crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, you notice that, the committed climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions, and this is what he said, and then the Beatitudes. Now those words of Jesus, of course, are talking to a physical climb up a mountain. This is the sermon, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But I tell you now, on the authority of God's word, if you would be happy, if you would hear these words, if you would believe these words, if you would put these words into practice, it will indeed be a tough climb. It's an upside down world. So let's take a closer look now. Let's go back and look at the eight sayings of Jesus one at a time. Here's the first one. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Now, all of you, all of you here, all of you online, you, you know what that saying means to be at the end of your rope. You understand that. It means I've had it. It means I'm frustrated. I've tried everything. It means I, I see no solution to the mess I'm in. It means uh, I'm, I'm at the end. When we say that, I'm at the end of my rope. But you know what the world says, of course, when you come to the end of your rope, and I have a picture here of illustrating what the world tells us to do, right? The world would say, when you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on for dear life. Jesus is saying, no, don't tie a knot and hang on. Take the offered hand of your Father in heaven. Don't you see the truth here? Whatever drives you to depend on God more ultimately brings happiness into your life. You believe that? Have you discovered that in your life? The young lady who came into my office, her circumstances obviously were desperate. 
by her own words. She said, I'm at the end of my rope. And a few moments in, I said, can I pray for you? And, and her response was, I'll take help from any place I can get it. Well, I did pray. But as we talked on a while longer, it became clear that she wanted God's help without putting her hand in his. She was holding back. Her attitude was, I'm, I'm a strong, independent woman. She wasn't happy when she came in. She wasn't happy when she want, went out. Unless there's been a change in her, she's not happy today, I expect. Happy, blessed are you, says Jesus, when you're at the end of your rope, because then you depend on God more. It is an upside-down world, isn't it? Here's the second beatitude. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Now that's exactly what the author of Psalm 46 was getting at when he penned these words. God is a present help in time of trouble. Let me ask you, is there, is there worse trouble than losing someone dear to you? Back in 2014, the movie came out, God's Not Dead. Maybe you saw it. Uh, it's a story about a first-year college student who's challenged by his atheist professor to prevent his, present his reasons for believing in God to his entire philosophy class. And he did present, and he did well, and there was some interchange with this antagonistic professor. But near the end of the movie, we discover that it's not so much that the professor doesn't believe in God, it's that he's mad at God, because in spite of his many and fervent prayers, his mother died of cancer when he was just 12. He lost what was dear to him, and he turned against God. I need to remind you today, if you're grieving, if you're grieving now or when you do, and you will, God is right there. He is a present help in your worst trouble. When I went to Yarmouth to pastor the second time in uh, 2013, there were two young mothers in the church who just before I got there, uh, they became friends. They, they both had recently lost a baby to SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. And as a result of that, they became really close friends. And just months after their loss, they started a ministry to moms all over Nova Scotia and beyond who had lost a child to SIDS. They, they would deliver what they called a hope box. Now, a hope box was about the size of a shoe box. And, and they would put in that box uh, personal care products, uh, poems, encouraging notes from moms who had experienced what they had experienced, helpful books and pamphlets, all for grieving mothers. And I thought when those young moms did that. What an, what an excellent example of this beatitude in action. Those young moms became better, not bitter. 
because in their grief, they learn what Jesus is talking about here. They learn to lean upon the everlasting arms. Here's the third beatitude. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Don't have to tell you, do I? It, it seems that we live in a culture that is really rather obsessed with things that can be bought. My dad and mom left this world in 1996 and they didn't leave much that can be bought. If I remember correctly, my inheritance was just over $1,100 in cash and a chime clock. $1,100 is long gone. I still enjoy that every time the clock chimes. I think of my dad and mom. But you know what? They left me so very much because they were, my dad and mom were so rich as, as the scripture says, owners of everything that can't be bought. Wonderful heritage they left me. Why? Because they got it right. They got it right here. They had it all. Do you? Here's the fourth beatitude. It reads, you're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink for the best meal you'll ever eat. Isn't, isn't it sad that so many people around us in these days have not grasped this truth, that the hole down inside of every one of us is God-shaped? When our youngest, Kate, was three, might have been four, she had one of those one of those puzzles, you know, a puzzle about this side with only 25 pieces. So as you can imagine, the pieces were quite large and she's working on it and I'm standing behind her and she's searching for the one that goes just about, just about in the middle. Well, I see it and I take her little hand and I want, and I want to put her hand on the piece that she needs for the middle of the puzzle. But as Kate was so prone to do. She, she said, no, Dad, I, I want to find it. I want to do it all by myself. So many people out there today, they, they're looking for it, the missing piece in their life, and they want to put it, they want to find it all by themselves. And, and they're trying for the missing piece, and they try this relationship and then they try that job, and they try this pleasure, and then they try that purchase, but it doesn't work. It doesn't fit because Jesus is the missing piece that goes right in the middle. The desire of my life, the purpose of my life, is to help you put your hand on that missing piece, to put your hand in his hand. Here's the fifth beatitude. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Perhaps the greatest characteristic of spiritual maturity, this, I, I really sincerely believe this. Let me say it again, catch this. Maybe the greatest characteristic of someone who's spiritually mature is realizing this, that the best spiritual food that you will ever eat 
is not being part of a small group or you feel loved and cared for and you share the word. That's, that's, that's good food. It's not listening to a sermon somewhere, sometime that inspires you and challenges you, enlightens you. That's, not, that's good food, but it's not the best. It's not attending a, a gospel a concert where the music just seems to bring you right into the presence. That's good. That's good spiritual food. But hear me, the best spiritual food you'll ever eat is when you care and you, and you put that into practice when you reach out and serve, when you offer a helping hand, it's when you give, when you serve. It's then, that's the best spiritual food, and that's when you truly sense God's favor. For several weeks, Mrs. Sherman's first grade class had been waiting and planning for a field trip to the observatory. Notices had been sent home with instructions about the bus and you had to bring a lunch and, and, and the note included times of departure and when the bus will arrive back at the school. And, and for the students, waiting for this once a year field trip was like waiting for Christmas. And finally the day arrived and the kids grabbed their grabbed their lunches and they grabbed their coats and they were all lining up for the bus. But in the back of the room, Jason began to cry because he had forgotten to bring a lunch and he would have to stay behind, this is what they planned, with another teacher and sit in that classroom for the day. And then it happened. One of the girls in the class opened up her lunch and took out one of her sandwiches and went back and put it on Jason's desk. And then another student opened his lunch and he went back and he put an apple and another student opened their lunch and put a cookie and another student opened their lunch and it was a drink. And, and it just kept has, happening until Jason ended up with a better lunch than anybody in the classroom. He had a feast. And with, with new tears, this time tears of gratitude, Jason grabbed his coat and lined up and climbed onto the bus. Jason was ecstatic, but that's not my point. You know where I'm going with this. So were the other students in the class ecstatic. I'm talking about the students who gave. You know the feeling, don't you? When, when you do something like those students did, it, it's like you, it's like then we're fulfilling the purpose for which God made us. You feel truly valued by God. It's then, perhaps more than any other time, you can, you can sense God's smile upon you. Here's number six. You're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. It's then you can see God in the outside world. I have a sign uh, sometimes it's in my office here, sometimes it's in my office at home that reads, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And uh, I believe that's one of the catchy saying, sayings of Yogi Berra, who was a coach for the new, uh, a catcher for the New York, later a coach, but originally a catcher for the New York Yankees way back uh, in the 50s and 60s. In, in, in Yogi's own way, he said things which were puzzling but yet unique and even profound it was yogi who did say when you come to a fork in the road take it okay it was yogi who said 
that you should go to other people's funerals because if you don't go to theirs, they won't come to yours. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Yogi, was the, Yogi was once asked because, I mean, there were dozens, there were hundreds of these kinds of things that he said. He was once asked, Yogi, how did you come to say all those things? His answer went like this. I didn't really say all the things I said. <laughs> but he got it right. He got it right on this one. The main thing is to keep the main thing. But our problem, well, I say our problem. It's certainly my problem. Is it yours? The problem with keeping the main thing is the main thing. At times, I get confused about what the main thing is. Can I help you with that this morning? Begin your day with a prayer like this. Father, give me a, give me a heart like yours this day. Father, as I encounter circumstances, situations, and people today, let me think your thoughts. Let me see people today through your eyes, the way you see them. Hear me, I promise you this. Based on the authority of God's word, pray that, and you will begin to see that person in your world that you might find the most intolerable as someone God greatly loves, and you'll feel God's compassion for them. And it'll overwhelm the feeling of the intolerance you might feel. You understand this? If there's a troubled relationship in your life, if there's a strain in a relationship in your life, it's, it's primarily your problem. Maybe you're not taking care of your inside world. I said this was a tough climb. Are you still climbing with me? Here's the seventh. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Someone wisely observed, and they put it this way, revenge is sweet to the taste, but it turns the stomach sour. Do you know who the most miserable people in the world are they're, you know who they are they're the grudge holders they're the they're the resentful they're the revenge plotters Jesus one of the translations this beatitude puts it this way blessed are happy blessed and happy are the peacemakers and the truth is that peacemakers don't get even they don't think like that peacemakers go to anyone that they have a problem with but they go beyond that. They also go to anyone that they sense has a problem with them. Peacemakers forgive whether the offender asks or not. Peacemakers forgive whether they feel like it or not. Some people think, well, I, I just don't feel it. I can't forgive until I feel like it. No, forgiveness is a choice of the will. Feelings will come along Afterwards, peacemakers forgive and forget. I've heard people say, well, you know, I, I've forgiven, but I can't forget. Well, you can always, I suppose, recall that event or what they said or what they did, that circumstance. But to forget means I will never mention that out loud to anyone ever again. Still with me? Here's the eighth. Here's the last. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. You see what Jesus is saying there? He's saying when you're persecuted, 
when you're criticized, when you take a little grief because you're a follower of mine, that's proof. Jesus is saying that's proof that you really are who you say you are. That's proof that you're really one of my followers and heaven gives you a standing O and the O stands for ovation, not odd. Valens was a Roman, the Roman Empire for 14 years back in century four. Eusebius was one of the strong Christian leaders during that time. He was a bishop. When the emperor threatened Eusebius with confiscation of all his goods, torture, banishment, or even death, the courageous Christian replied with these words, he needs not fear confiscation who has nothing to lose, nor banishment to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. I think Eusebius was the real thing, don't you? I wonder, when I read things like that, I wonder, John, could you respond like that under threat of death? You ever wonder that? Will heaven, will heaven be applauding? Is heaven applauding in these days for you and me? Because we'll take, gladly take a little grief for our faith. Uh, these Beatitudes certainly do show us an up upside-down world, don't you think? Yes, it's an upside-down world, but hear this this morning. It's the world you were made for. And you have His Holy Spirit working in you to accomplish this. So we conclude with a blessing. We don't usually think of these things, these eight things, as being all that blessed. But we want to close with this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace.